You're listening to a Tudor Institute Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor Institute Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by independent scholar Dr. Helen Sunner. Her paper was entitled The Ulster Pamphlets of James VI slash First Reconsidered. Thank you. Um, um, my thanks also to the planning committee. It's been a wonderful uh, conference, and I think it's really very much a tribute to the strength of the postgraduate uh, programs in, the, um, in Ireland that this conference could have been started by postgraduates, I don't know, what, maybe almost 10 years ago, and still be continued and still move around the universities. So thank you for keeping the uh, Tudor and Stewart conference in progress and for making it possible for me to have an excuse to come back to Galway. Um, yesterday, Breed gave a very entertaining presentation on the identity of the author of a Jacobean uh, colonial treatise about Ireland, and she began with an advisory that she had no intentions about talking about the content of the treatise, since it was the same old, same old rehashing of anti-Irish cliches, with, and I quote, no intellectual rigor in it. Um, so let me begin by apologizing for what will be, alas, a return to the content of some of those unrigorous colonial texts. In considering these colonial texts, critics and scholars of various disciplines and interpretive commitments have tended to highlight one of the texts as the most influential or representative of English or Anglophone colonial thinking. David Quinn famously plumped for Thomas Smith's pamphlet, and Nicholas Kennedy has credited Spencer's view with having set the agenda for English colonialism under Elizabeth and British colonialism in the Stuart era. Peter Mankell, on the other hand, credits Richard Hacklett with having created the, quote, grammar, logic, and language of Anglophone colonialism. Today, I'm going to make a case for the King's Three Ulster pamphlets as having um, been a major milestone in the rhetorical history of Anglophone colonialism. Of all the early modern treatises that have survived for us to analyze, the King's Three Ulster pamphlets have received very little critical attention. In some respects, this is not surprising. Um, at first, and maybe even second and third glance, the pamphlets seem to have little rhetorical content. Their main object, apparently, was to promulgate the terms and conditions for the Ulster Project, and the text, therefore, seemed to serve as mere containers of facts about the settlement scheme. There are no invisible bullets or rape fantasies or suffering bodies to have attracted much interest from the new historicists. And for a variety of reasons, the pamphlets are not the best source for historians interested in empirical evidence about how the Ulster Project was actually administered. I'm going to offer something of a close reading of these seemingly a-rhetorical texts and present evidence that the King's pamphlets inspired immediate reactions in the more colorful, colorful Jacobean colonial te- uh, promoters. In order to make the argument for a discursive shift, though, I'm going to have to characterize what came before James's pamphlets of 1609 and 16 cents. So I'm going to do a very quick potted history of um, Tudor colonial rhetoric. Um, this is, I think, relatively standard. I don't think there's anything I'm going to present that most people wouldn't agree with, even if they disagree on other things. But the Edward Walsh um, uh, 
uh, treatise is often presented as one of the early colonial treatises. I, I highlight it because, it, for one thing, it, does, it shows that it, he's not using the word plantation and he's having to describe what this enterprise is. But it's done in very optimistic terms. He's confident with his um, uh, humanist background that they will be able to do this, what he calls a certain knitting up in Ireland. The um, famous first printed pamphlet uh, by Thomas Smith um, has the same kind of long-winded explanation of what it is he's promoting in that pamphlet. He doesn't say this is a text about the plantation and the arts. He says it's uh, a large discourse of the peopling and inhabiting of the country called the Ards and other adjacent in the north of Ireland. He has to be pretty long-winded to explain what it is he's actually promoting. Um, I would also, I'll come back to it, but notice he he's, emphasizes on the title page his relationship with the Queen, uh, that he's a member of the Privy Council. Famous colonial rhetoric, obviously, prior to James, uh, would be anything associated with Raleigh. Raleigh usually gets credited with uh, the fir- or uh, being associated with the first use of the word plantation in print in, in a colonial context. The word plantation appeared in um, many other contexts. Um, uh, but I would even point out here in this um, uh, uh, letter to Raleigh in Hollinshed's Chronicles, they don't um, say, you know, Raleigh gets credit for having made the first plantation. They have to explain it's a plantation of people, and it's in Virginia, and it's a colony. I mean, the, the word plantation isn't standing alone as something everybody would understand. And um, there's a manuscript in the state papers that attempts to make the case for the Munster, what we call the Munster Plantation, um, it uses the language of seigneuries, and it's very much aimed at promoting the project as an opportunity for the younger houses of gentlemen to become a chief lord. It's very much aimed at um, kind of the aggrandizement of the planter. Um, and it's a, it's a type of Raleigh rhetoric that happens in both Virginia and um, uh, North, uh, North America generally, as well as Ireland. Um, you know, here's Raleigh, the great lord in Guiana, um, and I, well, I think it hasn't gotten much attention because this is his discovery of uh, Guiana text, I mean, which has gotten a tremendous amount of attention. But when he ends both the manuscript version, which was circulated at court about three or four months before it uh, showed up in print, um, he, he, he says, you know, if Elizabeth doesn't take on this new project, you know, I will judge those men worthy to be kings if they take it on. Um, by the time he's in print, he already knows she is not going to take it on. And he has to soften that a little bit. Kings thereof. They're going to be kings of Guiana, you know, but he has to clarify that. I'm not so sure that's what he meant originally. So there's this, you know, uh, aggrandizing rhetoric that belongs to Raleigh. Um, and then things start to go bad in Munster, and the optimism of Edward Walsh is no longer there. Spencer's view would be the more obvious text. This is one that Willie Maley transcribed, The Supplication of the Blood of the English. And all that friendly knitting up is long gone. You know, uh, uh, we need to, you know, there are weeds in this country. We need to root them out. There's no even a hint of um, a humanist heart in the middle of the supplication of the blood of the English. Um, here's another one from the Queen's Library. You know, again, it's a little more humane, but it's clearly gotten totally frustrated with this whole idea of planting people in and transforming the Irish that way. You know, we just need to get them out of there. I don't want them to be 
uh, eradicated, but they need, the Irish need to not be in Ireland. Um, James presented this, James participated in this before he became king of England as well. Um, his famous passage in Basilican Durham. This is the 1599 edition, and um, I think it's interesting for, point, for you know, again, the hostility and the, um, the harshness of the rhetoric, you know, that he should think of those as, them as neither, as if they were wolves and wild boars, and, you know, um, you're going to root them out. When he republishes this broader, and he, there's multiple editions in various languages, even after he becomes king of England and Ireland, he, he modulates this a little bit, and I think it shows his sensitivity to, um, in, in the composite monarchy, of having to be a little more, um, uh, a little less hostile in his language. He gets rid of the wolves and the wild boars and uh, emphasizes that there is a possibility to reform and civilize the best of them. Um, that's just a couple years later. So the, the, by the time he's ready to uh, promote his Ulster uh, project six years later, um, he publishes, the, the King's Printer publishes two editions of this text, one in London and one in Edinburgh, a collection of such orders and conditions um, the one says uh, 1608 on the, on the title page, but it was actually published in the probably late February or the first week in March at the latest of 2009 New Style. Um, so uh, these are the pamphlets that I think um, pr could make a case maybe even stronger than um, Spencer's View or Thomas Smith's um, pamphlet as having had a major impact in the progress of Anglophone colonialism. And it's going to take a close reading to explain why. After the flight of the Earls, James, um, James had originally, I should step back, he had really reined Raleigh in. Raleigh's arrest um, did two things. It got this would-be king of all the world out of the stage and out of his way with Spain. But it also cleared up the, any claim Raleigh might have on Virginia. So the first thing the king did was create a new patent for the Virginia Company that put him at the kind of administrative head of it. He had to appoint a council that would appoint a council. And so the Virginia Company suddenly is not all packlet and them are not publishing much at all about what they want to do in Virginia. There's no official text, and it's as if James has pulled in, reigned in the text as well as reigned in Raleigh. But after the flight of the Earls, James pivots his attention from a half-hearted personal engagement in Virginia to full enthusiasm for the potential that Ulster now offered him. And the King's Printers published three pamphlets, these two in 1609 and one in 1610, that promoted the Ulster project. The publication from the King's Printers of colonial pamphlets has attracted little attention, but it should be seen as a direct break with Elizabethan discourse. By conscious design to maintain plausible deniability, Elizabeth never published any pamphlets or treatises advocating colonial enterprises beyond carefully worded patents. So the King's 1609 pamphlets directly engaged the monarch in a genre which by 1609 had been the exclusive domain of subjects for nearly four decades. The 1609 pamphlet adopted some of the genre's discursive conventions and altered others. On the first page of the narrative, a collection of such orders uh, emphasizes that in giving away the greatest part of six counties in Ulster, the king has, quote, bypassed his own pro profit in order to serve the public peace and welfare of that kingdom. So the king is one of these peacemongers that Rich is so concerned about. 
This brief explanation of the project asserts that the king is graciously pleased to distribute the said lands to subjects of Great Britain as of, and as of Ireland, who have a mind not only to benefit themselves, but do service to the crown and the commonwealth. The king's rhetoric here engages the honor and utility commonplace that was central to Tudor colonial rhetoric, but modifies the trope by positioning the monarch on both sides of the equation. And in an even more radical departure from 16th century colonial treatises, this opening statement identifies Irish subjects as participants in the project, aligning them with the English and the Scottish as potential servants to the Commonwealth, rather than the barbarians to be subdued. And leaving behind the late Elizabethan belligerents, the King's 1609 pamphlet explicitly identifies the purpose of James's plantation as having been designed to serve the public peace. In his first paragraph, the King's pamphlet deploys various commonplaces that have become associated with colonial promotional treatises, but in a way that does not quite align with precedent. The King's pamphlet avoids the word colony, but it also uses the word plantation in a variety of ways. In both the English and Scottish editions, the project is described on the title page, much as it was described in the manuscripts that outlined the official project plans as the distribution and plantation of the escheated lands in Ulster. And this is the first appearance in the King's 1609 printed pamphlets. Plantation is something that is done to the land. It's the distribution and plantation of lands. Um, But plantation is also given a capital letter, unlike distribution, on the front page. Um, And in this most prominent use of the word in the pamphlet, uh, it says orders and conditions for plantation in Ulster. That's the running head that goes through every page that has a running head. So plantation in Ulster becomes uh, basically shorthand for the pamphlet altogether. Um, But in in this most prominent use of the word, the choice of the preposition distances plantation from something done to the land. Apparently plantation is something that happens in Ulster rather than to Ulster. Although the language of colonial plantation had not yet solidified, the King's 1609 pamphlet makes it clear that the word has the monarch's imprimatur. But in its most radical departure from the colonial treatises and pamphlets which preceded it, the King's 1609 pamphlets never explicitly state whether this is an enterprise aimed at planting loyal subjects or uprooting the reeds of the rebellious Irish or a plantation of the law, or a plantation of religion, or more literally, merely an effort to get Ulster's agricultural production going after the scorched earth tactics of the Nine Years' War. James' new project at Ulster is just plantation, and the nominalized form of the verb to plant buries the grammatical subject and the grammatical object and creates ambiguity about who or what is being planted. If this language of plantation was ambiguous, the matter contained in the orders and conditions themselves, however, could suggest that the Tudor conception of planting English colonies in Ireland was alive and well. But the evidence here is ambiguous, too. Scattered amidst the itemized summaries of orders and conditions, like souvenirs of the Tudor rhetoric and comforting talisman for uh, James's British settlers, are suggestions of discursive continuity with the 16th century conception of planting loyal subjects in Ireland as a cost-effective alternative to more traditional garrisons. There are requirements to build castles, strong courts, and bonds for mutual defense and strength. The undertakers and servitors are required to have ready at their houses at all time a convenient store of arms, uh, wherewith they may furnish a competent number of able men for their defense, and the articles require those men to muster at least every six months. Likewise, the more godly of James's subjects could find amid the articles that what was missing in the king's objectless grammar of plantation, 
The undertakers and servitors will be required to take the oath of supremacy and conform themselves in religion according to his majesty's laws. From this evidence, the king's plantation seems to be aimed at creating a well-armed Protestant society in Ulster. However, any connection between James's plantation and the old idea of planting people as a mean for rooting out either Gaelic barbarism or papish superstition is complicated by the pamphlet's emphasis on the inclusion of the Irish natives as participants in the project. Although the articles concerning the Irish natives who shall be admitted to be freeholders makes no, make no mention of maintaining a convenient store of arms or mustering their men every six months, the Irish undertakers are required to build their castles, houses, and bonds within two years, just as the former undertakers. And readers of either Protestant or Catholic commitments would have noticed but reacted differently to the fact that the articles do not require the Irish undertakers or tenants to take the oath of supremacy that is required of the British participants. By highlighting that the Irish planters, something the Elizabethans would have considered a contradiction in terms, by highlighting that the Irish planters will participate in the scheme as grantees, the king's rhetoric suggests that his Irish subjects are equally capable of service to the Jacobean Commonwealth, rather than defining them as enemies to be subdued or rooted out, at least not explicitly. The pamphlet presents as a given that Ulster is comprised largely of unreformed and waste countries, but there's no diatribe against the Irish, nor are there any complaints about barbarity or recusancy to clarify the meaning of unreformed. It is the land that is unreformed in that sentence, not people. The inclusion of the native Irish as one class of participants in the scheme, even if they received their proportion on harder terms, suggests but does not quite state that this bounteous act by the king is genuinely gracious, a transformation in the relation of the Irish to their monarch now that James is on the throne. On the other hand, the king's collection of orders announces that the Irish of these cheated territories, whether freeholder or tenant, will be surrounded by a well-armed, well-fortified Protestants, which might also suggest that not much has changed from the Elizabethan concept of colonialism in Ireland. This apparently cut-and-dried pamphlet is actually something of a masterpiece in strategic ambiguity. We can date the 1609 pamphlets through Chichester's letters. In mid-January of 1609, he's anxiously awaiting in Dublin the final plan to come forward, and he's saying nothing can go forward until the project arrives in print. But when the pamphlet does arrive in either late February or early March, Chichester has an immediate reaction uh, that is instantly negative. And four days after receiving the pamphlet, he reports back to London that... uh, uh, Every man is unhappy with the project. You have a feeling he and a couple of his comrades sat around commiserated over it. Um, he emphasized the terms. He, they were particularly unhappy that the largest proportions would be required, the people who got those would be required to hold their land in night service and then be at risk for feudal wardship system. But in any case, the decision was made to uh, do a more detailed survey and hold off on actually the settlement. So the settlement didn't go forward until the spring of 1610. So the pamphlet was kind of, the 1609 pamphlet was actually relatively quickly obsolete in Irish terms. But the immediate reaction beyond what happened in Ireland was James created a new patent for Virginia that extricated him from a lot of direct hands-on control. Let loose the reins, they're finally able to publish again. And the Virginia company tries its best to embrace this language of plantation and the language of British 
and it's very hard for them. They, that was an English colony they were working on, and, and they work very hard. I don't have time to go through it. It's actually kind of fun to see it. They give all kinds of tautologies. We're going to plant the plantation. They try and figure out this one. They talk about, you know, for the plantation in Virginia or Nova Britannia. You know, they're trying to get a name, but they like Virginia. It's actually relatively comical. But plantation, plantation does become the, um, the language that's used in Virginia. Um, and then when you get to 1610, uh, you have a feeling that James has lost a little bit of interest in um, uh, the, the Ulster project was not quite as exciting, I think, as he thought. And um, you see Chichester's influence in the 1610 edition. He's taken the whole Irish um, uh, undertaker's portion out of it. Unlike a collection of, of uh, uh, items, this is now conditions to be observed. It's very directive. There's even less rhetoric in this one. And he outlines in those bracketed form, uh, bracketed form there the, uh, the main conditions. That, uh, Moody has shown through manuscript that the, this publication came out probably the first week in April of 1610, definitively by the first week in April. And... Um, there's an immediate reaction with Thomas Blunderhassett, and I'm going to go relatively quickly here, but you can see one of the first things is he is responding directly to the king's second pamphlet. The layout is the same with the bracketed terms. It's almost exactly the same. And he has picked up this language of plantation, even though uh, Chichester has pretty much eradicated it from the second publication. It's now known as plantation. So the king's rhetoric stuck from the 1609 pamphlet. Um, and it's highly critical. People have referred to this as being very promotional. It's very critical of the King's project. And he's saying, you know, uh, the principal stud is wrong. This is completely wrong. And he, he makes a, a basically an Elizabethan argument for what the plantation should be. And in my favorite part of it, he tries to put James back in the role Elizabeth played. There's this wonderful kind of poem uh, to James and, you know, talking about the resplendency of his majesty's presence doth so illustrate the never-descending beams of his ever-respecting favor, super-exceeding good. But his whole plan wants him to fund garrisons. So he wants, just like Elizabeth, he wants, them to, wants him to pay for it. And then there's immediately, uh, this one's entered into the, both Blennerhesset uh, uh, and New Description of Ireland enter the stationer's uh, register immediately after the king's pamphlet. And Rich has put... Um, uh, 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 a letter at the front of a new description where he specifically talks about the plantation. He starts off sounding like he's going to praise it, and then he lists all the ways the people there are going to end up murdered. And after listing all the multiple ways that they're going to be murdered, he says, I see there'll be a number that are afraid, but it's only of their own shadows. Um, so to conclude, every, from this point on, uh, plantation is known as, I mean, James's language of plantation is the language, the archipelagic English, if, if you would like, for col the colonial enterprise. And because it's an ambiguous language, it's words that can, uh, are open to people like John Davies, but it also can be um, um, absorbed even by dissenters in New England. Plantation has become a good. It's endorsed by the king, it's endorsed by the merchants, it's endorsed by, endorsed by the clergy, and we don't have to say what plantation is anymore. It's a known good. And in doing so, it energized the uh, colonial effort at the level of the, of the recruitment of settlers, whether they were attracted to the New England version or the Ulster version or the Virginia version. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.